you are not already turned there, please turn to Jude. We'll be looking at verses 24 and 25. I would invite you to stand as we prepare to work our way through perhaps one of the greatest doxologies of the scriptures. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Both this week and next week, we come to the end of this little yet, I would say, profound letter known to us as the letter of Jude. This is just the 12th message in this book, a series that began, I had to look back, on July 24th. It's been a blessing to work through this book. And while Jude was not one of the 12 apostles himself, we, we do recognize that he had the distinction of being the child of Joseph and Mary and therefore the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me remind you as well that the majority of this letter Jude has spent uh, there in verses 4 through 16 detailing for us the character and, most significantly, the coming judgment on those who have fallen away, on those who are apostates, on those who have never truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They may have attended a church for some time. They may have made a confession of faith, but something never in, in clicked in them. They never came to that saving knowledge. They fell away from the truths and the precepts of God. And they, they failed to recognize what the words uh, taught concerning God, man, sin, salvation, and most significantly, our Lord Jesus Christ. And they go off and they begin to propagate a false gospel with false teachings, leading other people astray. Some of these people do it professionally. Some of them are in pulpits preaching today. Some of them are teaching in seminaries. Some of them are sitting in, uh, in pews right now. Some will be teaching Sunday school classes. Some of them you may go to their homes and have dinner with them. And if you're not careful in thinking about what is actually being communicated, it could be a, an apostate teaching. In verse 17, we noted a shift, though, after this inundation of speaking about apostates and, and uh, speaking, to, uh, speaking of what their judgment is to be. He begins with these words in verse 17, but you beloved. In verses 17 through 21, Jude has given believers their marching orders, we said. I call to arms, revealing how does the church protect itself from both the error of those who have fallen away, as well as guarding ourselves from falling away from the faith. Or to put it positively, as Jude said to us in verse 3, what does it look like to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints? We noted that a church, in order to do that, must remember the apostles, what they have spoken beforehand, not only what they said about the coming apostates, but I would include in that all that they have communicated to us as directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in verses 17 and 18. 
We've seen all sorts of commands. Of course, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by building up one another on the most holy faith. That's a call to know the word of God, to know the truth. We live in such interesting times, and I'm sure every generation can say that. But we live in a time when we're seeing Christians being confused as to what is truth. And so it's all the more incumbent that we be building ourselves up on what is the truth of God's word. We are to be those who pray in the Holy Spirit, those who are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to move us and to lead us in the way that we should go. In verses 22 and 23, we noted how Jude instructs the church to engage those who are either apostates or falling into apostasy and how we are to uh, make sure that, that those who are under the influence of apostates, those who are in danger of falling away from the, from the faith, that we can turn them back towards the truth, that we can be the rescuers, snatching them out of the fire, as he says, of God's judgment, all while being careful that we ourselves not be sucked in by the teaching and behavior of apostates. Well, this letter has been devoted to this one singular subject. No other book is like it in that it's singularly focused on apostasy. Jude has walked the readers through the history of Israel, showing how they fell away from the faith. He has walked us through the Sodomites who fell away from the faith. He recounted how even angels have fallen away from the faith. In verses 22 and 23, the church is called to reach out to those who have become victims to the influence of the apostates. The point of all of this reveals to us the dark and sinister, shrewd and powerful, the enticing nature of apostasy. It is not to be toyed with. It is not to be played with. Uh, and a natural as well as legitimate question then that ought to come up in the minds of the believers. And that which I think that Jude now is, is formulating in his head, he's saying how dangerous apostasy is. Watch out lest you fall. Watch out lest those who are around you would fall. It's all around. Now he's anticipating a, a question. If apostasy is so dangerous, if it is so deadly, if false teaching is as prevalent, Jude, as you say that it is, and I would say if false teaching is as prevalent today as it really is, if it's so polluting and destructive, then what's the question? How? How is it possible for believers to stand against it? We stand from a human perspective against overwhelming odds. The vast majority of people do not believe in the truth. And you can look at the surveys that have been done by Barna and Gallup and, and Lifeway, and the majority of Christians do not hold to the truth. I say professing Christians. So how do we stand against such overwhelming odds? What can we do in order to survive the onslaught of apostasy? Beloved, if we are left to our own devices, if we are dependent upon the, the great mental abilities of just a handful of men, whether it be like R.C. Sproul's or, or John MacArthur's, whoever it might be, if we think that we will be able to sort out all doctrinal truth from error, that if we think that it will be by our own willpower that we will resist the temptation to follow after something other than the true gospel, I promise you we will fail and we will fall. So what do we do? 
It follows the precepts, I, precept, I think, of a, a, a principle of Psalm 130, verse 3. You've heard this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, what's it say? Oh, Lord, who could stand? And what's the answer to the question? If the Lord were to identify every one of your sins and judge you based on your sin, would you be able to stand? Every one would fall. In like manner, I think if we can tweak that principle to say, if we, Lord, are left to ourselves to stand against apostasy, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is not one. And I, I need that to be burned into my brain. And I, you need that to be burned into your brain because sometimes we think more of ourselves than we ought. And we do not look to the one who has promised he will deliver us, that he will see us through, that our salvation is in no wise dependent upon what we do, but what Christ has done and done alone. Even believers are reminded of our desperate state without the Lord's intervention and help. Not only would you never be saved unless God initiated it, you would never continue in salvation unless God continued it. That's the desperate condition. Therefore, Jude answers the question, if we, Lord, are left to ourselves to stand against apostasy, O Lord, who could stand? He answers the question in verse 24 by saying what? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We are immediately catapulted to someone greater than ourselves, someone wiser than ourselves, someone more willing than we are ourselves to keep us in the love of God, to keep us in his salvation. If I were to ask you which teaching of scripture concerning salvation brings the most comfort to your soul, the most awe-filled satisfaction to your heart, the most wonderment. How can anything else compare to the truth that God has saved you, a sinner? The deliverance from the deserved punishment that each and every one of us deserves as fallen creatures, along with the precious promise of a restored and eternal relationship with your creator God to dwell in his glorious Marvelous presence for all eternity. And that all of this is by what? How does this come about? What have you done? It comes, beloved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, what is the point of all of this? That not only can I do nothing to earn this salvation... I am not required to do anything for this salvation except believe that Christ is sufficient for its entirety. That it's by Christ alone, by his life alone, through his death alone, by the shed blood that has done everything necessary for me now to be made right with God by simply believing this is so. This is to understand that salvation, deliverance from sin, and restoration to God is all of grace. 
It is a gift that is completely unmerited and unwarranted on your part. It is a gift of unconditional love from God the Father. It is a gift that's been solely secured by God the Son. And it is a gift that is only applied by God the Holy Spirit through faith alone. But I ask you, I say all of that. Is this what God has really said to us in his word? Is this what scripture truly teaches? Is it so plain and so obvious? Because the reality is the majority of people do not believe what I just told you. Some may give lip service to it, but even at some levels, we can be in danger of interjecting ourselves into this equation. Why are there so many religions that teach people must do things to merit their salvation? Why are there so many religions that that teach that you must do something to maintain your salvation? And to answer the previous questions, yes, it is plain and evident that this is what God's word teaches. For example, we read in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, these words. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a grace, as a favor. But as to what is due to him, he has earned it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him. So notice that faith is not a work. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, it is imputed, it is charged to his account ledger as righteousness. It's not his. It didn't come from him. It was given to him. His perfect standing is all from God. Because if it's anything of man, it is a work and it is due to him. Some will argue that isn't faith a work? Isn't that something we must do? I would ask you what part of Romans 4, 4 and 5 even suggests that. How do you read that into the text? Further, we are clearly told in a passage that you are all so familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that this faith that is credited to us as righteousness is actually the gift of God, not the work of men. We read, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me ask you, what is What is it that is not of yourselves in this text? And we can go into a lot of lengthy understanding of the the Greek text with all of that, but let me just remind you that the the that refers to uh, just one thing. It refers to the entire concept of being, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that entire process of salvation. So the grace is not from yourself. The salvation is not from yourself, and the faith, is not from yourself. That is the point, that it's not. It's obviously not of ourselves. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, this grace through faith, uh, salvation is not of yourselves. Further, look at the next statement, which clearly informs us that this faith that we have now is not a work, because it says, not as a result of what? Works. You combine that with Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, and you have a truth to contend with. Now, I wish to offer you that this doctrine, the teaching that salvation is the gift of God by grace through faith alone, is the most encouraging 
It is the most comforting. It is the most delightful of the teachings of scriptures and ought to be meditated on profoundly. Some of you are wondering how any of this is related to the Jude text. I can see it in your eyes. Be patient. I'm getting there. For I submit to you that another teaching of scripture that is directly linked to what we have just seen that therefore brings joy and delight to the soul is this, that salvation, because it is all of God, because God doesn't change, God isn't fickle, God doesn't get his feelings hurt, God is not one who, who ebbs and flows, that salvation is eternally secure. Just as no one can do anything to earn salvation, I submit to you no one can do anything to unsecure it because it's not based on what they do or do not do. The believer is eternally forever secure, not because of what he can or cannot do, what he does or does not do, but rather because of what God has done and will continue to do. Beloved, if any part of the believer's status as being saved is made dependent upon his own power, his own ability, the depth of his devotion, or God forbid, his own self-righteousness, then every believer would end up eternally damned. Not one question. If salvation can be lost, then each and every one of us would be sure to lose it. You would wake up every morning going, where did I put it? Some of you have that problem with your keys. Wouldn't such a teaching then be a joy that genuine salvation cannot be lost because of what I do or do not do because it's based solely upon Christ and what he has done once for all? I find it most profound that in a letter almost entirely devoted to the subject of apostasy of those who have fallen away from the truth, that Jude determines by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to end this letter in the very way in which he began it with the security of the believer because of the full and completed work of Christ on his behalf. In Jude 1, if you'll look up there with me, he spoke of the believer as being kept for Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are a kept person. You've heard that phrase before. What does it mean to be kept? You belong to that person. You are at that person's beck and call. You are taken care of by that person. Here Jude begins, if you are the beloved of God, you are kept for Jesus. And now, in responding to the question, if apostasy is so prevalent, so enticing, so dangerous among us, that who could stand? Jude writes, I say it again, now to him. To him alone who is able to keep you, the one that is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We, what we will immediately note is Jude's insistence that this is clearly a God thing. It's by God's power that he is able to keep his beloved ones safe and secure in their salvation. One more note before we look at our text. Jude does not end this letter like some other letters that you read in the New Testament. There's no personal statements. Hey, Timothy, bring me my cloak. There's no end greetings where he says, I want to I thank these people who have come to see me and, and minister to me. And I want to, to call out these people who have been so faithful. There's none of that in our text. No name dropping. Rather, he ends on what we call a doxology. The word doxology is the combination of two Greek words, doxa, 
which means glory or praise, and logos, which means uh, word or speaking. So a doxology is the speaking of glory, the giving of praise. In scripture, we find many doxologies or hymns of praise to the Lord. In this past summer, we went through a series, the summer series in the Psalms. We're reminded that there are 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, divided into five books in that particular, in, in the uh, entirety. And what's interesting to note that the end of every one of those uh, books is a doxology. And I've listed them for you. You can look them up. So the end of book one, chapter 41, verse 13 is a doxology. And you go through the very last verses of the entirety of the Psalms. And what do you find? A hymn of praise. And in fact, Psalm 150 is entirely devoted to let everything that have breath give a doxology to the Lord. To, so there, there's this idea. There's a glorious doxology that's found for us in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. There we read these words. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become, who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Why do I share all of this? Because in like manner, in our text before us, the Holy Spirit moved Jude to give a doxology, a hymn of praise to God, specifically for the, the security of the believer's salvation, saying that it is secure because it's not in you, it's in God and God alone. And so we read our text again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, not to rattle you, but from these two verses, I have eight points. Yes, eight. We'll be looking at these, if we can put them up there, at God's protection, God's presentation, God's promise, God's prominence, God's position, God's power, God's prestige, and God's priority. Now, don't panic. We will not look at all of these this morning. In fact, we're only going to look at the first one this morning and leave the seven for next week. I know you think that's not possible, but just stay with me. There are so many powerful doctrinal truths contained in this wonderful uh, doxology that we want to spend some time on this first point to lay the foundation for the others. And so we will begin this morning with this first point of what we've entitled God's protection. God's protection. We're going to simply break down this opening phrase and dissect it a bit for ourselves to understand what Jude is seeking to communicate because there are those who have taken this verse and taken this first phrase and have perverted it to mean something that it cannot mean. So we begin with the first aspect, now to him, now to him. We begin with a conjunction, the word now, and it indicates a shift in the letter. It is being used to introduce us to this doxology. It is really saying, okay, 
you've got all of this, let's put that aside, and I want you to focus now not on apostasy. I don't want you to get your minds just fixated on what's going on here on earth. Now, wake up, and we're going to look to him. Now, to him. It literally reads in the Greek this way, now to the one. Now to the one. This emphatic statement referring to God the Father. It is speaking to the one who is the author of the divine plan in answering the question of how believers could ever stand in the days of apostasy. Jude answers emphatically, it is because of the one God, the true God. God and God alone is able to keep you from falling. But he goes on. He doesn't just say now to him. He says now to him who is able. The word able in the Greek is the verb dunamai. We get uh, a noun dunamos is the, is the word in the English that we, or in the Greek where we get our English words dynamite. It refers to power. The verb dunamai means possessing and exerting the energy or power or force necessary to accomplish something. It's not Maybe I have enough power. God is not the little engine that says, I think I can. I think I can. He is the God who simply says, I am able. I will do. We might say that God is able to do. He is strong enough to do. He has the power to do whatever it is he says he will do. Don't you wish you had that kind of power? Sometimes you just say, uh, you know, Every once in a while, you'll watch some kind of crime show. And it irks me, okay? I'm sorry, a little personal thought. Uh, that when you know, some, some murder happens or they got to catch the bad guy and the detective says to the person, I promise you we'll catch this guy. And I'm thinking like, how can you make that promise? Or I promise you nothing will happen to you. We don't have the power. We may try to do everything we can, but you cannot say that. But God can. There's nothing that God is not able to do except to lie. You can't lie if you wanted to give him something like that. The verb is in the present tense, saying then that God is able and always able and will continue to be able and never not be able to do whatever it is that he has determined to do. God will keep his beloved before us then, in this little statement, now to him who is able, I would have you note this with me, is the doctrine of the omnipotence of God. There is nothing that is impossible for our God. And those who teach the false doctrine that you can lose your salvation are undermining the power of God to keep his own. They're saying God's not able to do what he set out to do. He is all-powerful in his ability to do, and no one else is like him. And your salvation is not then built upon your ability. It's not based upon uh, the, the ability of your, your pastor or a parent or a friend. It's based upon him who is able. But we continue on. Now to him who is able to keep. We have another verb that follows this verb able. It's the verb keep, which means to watch or to watch or to keep watch. It is a word that was used to describe uh, soldiers keeping watch over prisoners or keeping watch over something that they were to be protecting. It has the idea of keeping your eyes on something so as to keep it safe. 
you uh, keep your eyes on your children. That's the idea of this word, keep. You're keeping watch on that particular child. You might want to note that the NASB uses the word back up in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's actually a different Greek word, one meaning to keep hold of or to possess. The word translated here is the same word that's used in verse 24, and this will just give you this, this word picture. Luke 2, 2, 8, where it says, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in their fields, and what were they doing? Keeping watch over their flock by night. They were guarding the flock against what, people? Peril. Wolves, whatever might come in. There were savage wolves looking, for, uh, looking to devour some of those helpless sheep. Jude uses that imagery in reminding his readers that God is watching you. Now, normally when you say that, God is watching you, you can use that to kind of uh, try to keep somebody in line. God's watching you, so stay, toe the line, buddy, right? But here the idea is God's watching you not just for what you do, but anything that could hurt you or harm you. But he goes on. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, what is God protecting his beloved ones from? What is he able to do? He is able, Jude says, to keep his beloved ones from stumbling. The idea is that God protects his people from being apostates. God preserves you. This is kind of literal reading. God preserves you unstumbling. Now, unstumbling is not really an English word, but that's, that's really the understanding here. God is able. Now, to him who is able to keep you unstumbling, the idea is that God protects you from falling away. Note what is said here, that God and God alone not God and you, God keeps his people from falling away from the faith. Now, some have taken this to mean that God keeps his people from sinning. There's a teaching in, in Wesleyan Methodism that says there's a thing called sinless perfection, that if you come to Christ, you should get to a, the state where you no longer sin. And they use this verse as part of that, that you would say, uh, God has promised to keep me from sinning. Well, is that what is said? There's the sinless perfection. Some will tone it down to say that God keeps his people not from all sin, but from the sin that keeps them from falling away from the faith, some final or deadly sin. That Judah speaking of God keeping his people from sinning at all would go against Scripture. How, how can I say that? Because let's let scripture interpret scripture, right? So what is meant by the word stumbling? Well, in James chapter 3, verse 2, Jude uses not the word unstumbling, but without the prefix, he talks about stumbling. And he says what? For we all stumble in many ways. How many of you agree with that statement, right? In fact, Jude says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And I think most of us realize that's not possible. John and 1 John would say, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So James using the same verb for stumble here, and he uses it to speak of a person who is sinning. So James says, we all stumble. And then you'd have to say, but Jude says that God keeps his people from stumbling, from sinning. So how do we resolve the tension? Again, Jude uses stumble to speak of sin, but Jude uses unstumble. 
I think the idea is to not speak of being sinless, but in context of being exempt from the eternal punishment which sin brings. What has Jude been saying is going to be the result of anybody who falls into apostasy? They're going to be judged eternally, condemned forever. Uh, how many of you want to go there? No? What do you got to do to do that? Not go there. You trust God alone because God says, I am able to keep you from the eternal punishment that sin ultimately brings. He will keep you and preserve you in a state of unstumbleness. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin. It just means that he is keeping you from that final judgment of sin. And is that not what we look forward to? Is that not what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper? We recognize there's still sin, and we begin almost every Lord's Supper with what? Confess your sin. Confess your sin now. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner because we know we still sin. But we also know that because of the blood of Christ, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's the idea of what Jude is getting at here, that we are not receiving the penalty of our sins because those sins have been bought for, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is being stated here, and you guys are going to think we're getting lost in the weeds. Hang on to your hats. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is part, the final point of what we refer to as the five points of Calvinism or what I would rather refer to as biblical Christianity concerning salvation. Most of you are familiar with the acronym TULIP, which Calvin never devised. That was not his making at all. In fact, it wasn't even the Calvinist uh, who uh, instigated the necessity for such an acronym. It was because of the error and false teaching. But TULIP stands for the total depravity of man, that man is in a horrific state in his sin. The unconditional election, that God does not condition election upon what man does. That a limited atonement, that Christ died specifically for a peculiar people. Irresistible grace, that when the Spirit of God gets a hold of a man or woman's heart, he or she will come. And then this last one, the perseverance of the saints. That's the one I wish to, to have you see is being talked about by Jude. It does, what is perseverance of the saints? It does not mean that a true Christian always lives a holy life of obedience. Most of you are aware you have not lived an entirely uh, a life completely in obedience to God. That they themselves somehow persevere in holiness. That's not what's being taught. It means that no one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom God has transformed, will ever be lost. Why? Because those whom God calls to himself, he eternally keeps to himself. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Often, rather than using the per word term perseverance of the saints, I might prefer to use the word preservation of the saints. This doctrine is what most people would refer to as eternal security. Beloved, believers are saved by grace through faith, which we saw earlier is not a work uh, that saves a person. It's not, it's not what we do, but it's the gift of God. And the faith that we have is simply what? It is a response to the work that God has done. You see what God has done, you're like, you've done it all. There's nothing left for me to do. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. What else are you going to add to the work? Well, my faith, I have to add my faith. 
No, faith is given to you so that you may see and behold and say, I believe. I trust in you and you alone. While believers must continually believe, and this belief will be demonstrated in how we live our lives, including how we repent of the sin that manifests itself in our lives, may I remind you that we are not saved by our demonstrations of faith. And I think that's where so many in the church get in trouble. We think we're saved by our demonstrations of faith. It is God who saves. It is God who keeps. It is God who empowers us to live out our faith. And as we live out our faith, we have assurance of salvation. We see God at work in us, but we, but are the works, but we are saved by the works, by the merits, by the blood of Christ, not, as we sang earlier, by what our hands have done. Beloved, what I'm trying to say is that the gift of eternal life, which we all would agree is from God and God alone, is faultless, it is full, and it is final. There's nothing else to do. This is not a motivation to sin as if to say, well, then what does it matter if I continue in sin since salvation is all of grace? Many of you know the Apostle Paul addressed that very question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And what was his answer in, in Romans 6, 2? May it never be, for how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How do believers die to sin? You ever think about that? God works in you. You will not die to sin in yourself. You will die to sin because God is at work in you. We have faith that God will work it out in us and through us. The scriptures do not teach us that believers will always be walking in obedience. How do we know this? Because there's so many exhortations made to believers to what? Stop sinning. Stop doing those things and confess your sins to God. There are many in the church who fail to understand that salvation is never based upon what we do, but always upon what Christ has done. Many believe their relationship to God is based upon their performance. And I submit that's the easiest, probably the most dangerous thing we, most of us in this church, would do. We start thinking our relationship to God is based upon what I do or do not do. And what are you doing when you've done that? You're undermining the work of Christ. Jesus paid it all. We wrongly conclude that so long as we do right things to live the Christian life by such works is to live under the, uh, is to uh, uh, be in a place where God will not condemn us. But how can you be condemned if you're in Christ? Beloved, that's a works-based salvation. To attempt to live the Christian life by those works, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I go to church, as long as I'm kind to my spouse, as long as I, you know, feed my children, that then God, then, then I'm right with God. That's unbiblical. That's not what we're being told in Scripture. To attempt to live your life that way is to live under a constant cloud of guilt and condemnation because we'll come to the conclusion that I could never do enough. There's not enough things that I can do to make God happy with me. And we realize that the only person who makes God happy is Jesus Christ. And so to be covered with his righteousness, to possess his merit, then is the only way we can be right with God. If left to ourselves, as we've said, we would fall away from the Lord. Jude has shown us that angels have. If angels can fall away from the Lord, 
Who are you, O man, to say that I would never fall away from the Lord? If left to yourself, you would fall away from the Lord. Most, we, we've read in Jude that prominent Bible characters, Korah, uh, Cain, they fell away from the Lord. Who are you to think that you in yourself will not fall away? We've read that even present-day teachers have fallen away from the Lord. What keeps? What guards? What protects? What will preserve you in the end? What keeps that true believer from falling away as well? It's something in himself. Is it your obedience to God? Is it keeping a sinless life? No, in the end, when all is said and done, we must confess with the prophet Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. We must be wary of thinking that our obedience or our faithfulness saves us. To be sure, the one who is saved strives to be obedient, seeks to be faithful, but that doesn't save you. That doesn't keep you. That doesn't guard you. In the day of judgment, only God, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, keeps the believer from falling away. We must understand that salvation is by grace through faith, and because of this, true believers are absolutely secure. It is by, because Christ's work alone has done it. That brings peace. That brings joy. That brings a delight to the soul. And beloved, I submit to you, this is what Jude is conveying. If we are to stand firm against apostasy, then stand firm in our faith, we recognize it is by God's ability that we will do that. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I'd have you turn with me to Romans chapter 5, if you would. And I want to flesh this out just a little bit more. And I will get there. I have a couple of verses to share with you before that, but I'll read those to you. What we're saying is that salvation from beginning to end is God. It is the result of the work of the one person, Jesus Christ. Therefore, your security as a believer is found, your preservation as a saint is found not in yourself but God. Even as all the people were condemned and damned as sinners by Adam's act in the garden, so also are those who are saved, saved completely and wholly by the work of Christ and Christ alone. In Romans 5, we'll get there in just a moment, we find this very teaching. There's be a comparison between two men, that of Adam and that of Christ. It is a very simple comparison. Each man perform, performed a single act, a single act which resulted in becoming the experience of every one after them who's found in that respective head. The point of Romans 5, 12 through 21 is how one man's actions affects everybody who follows him. The picture of Christ, the last Adam, stands in contrast to the first Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we read, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And that's referencing Christ as the second or last Adam. Two men, Adam and Christ, each represent those who are related to them. The acts of these representatives are literally imputed, charged to their account, reckoned as belonging to all whom they represent. So when Adam sinned, it was reckoned, it was given to you as your sin. If you are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is reckoned as your righteousness. 
So we find that sin is imputed in, Ro in Romans 5.12. We find that sin is imputed. It is reckoned as belonging to all humanity through Adam. We also find that righteousness, being made right with God, is imputed or reckoned as belonging to all those who have simply done what? Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God took what we owed him, the unpayable debt of our sins accrued, and he put it on Christ's account. He reckoned it as it belonged to Christ. And what did Christ do with it? Something we could not do. He paid the debt in full. Beloved, if we are to rightly appreciate the wonder of our salvation, our security in Christ, our ability to stand in days of apostasy, we must understand this divine transaction. Jesus paid it all. There is a standard that must be met if we would enjoy heaven. Did you know that? God does not let just anyone in heaven. There is a divine standard that you're being checked at the door to see if you have, if you want to put in those crude terms. And that standard is perfection. We must be perfect. Jesus said so in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said the devastating words. I can't imagine what must have gone through the, the heads and hearts of the people when Jesus said, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the, and the cry should have been, O Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Who can live to that standard? Well, in Romans 5, verses 12, 18, and 19, we have them up there we see this transaction taking place. I'd have you note in verse 18, we find a comparison as, and it was also stated in verse 12, and now verse 18 halfway through completes it by saying, even so. So verse 12 reads, just as through one man, that one act of Adam, how it affected the entirety of the human race. Now in verse 18, he's going to shift it and say in verse 18, even so, the one act of Jesus Christ affects every member of the elect race, those who believe. We read in verse 18, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men who are in Adam, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to life to all men, all men who are in Christ. We are, the, we are first reminded of what happened to humanity in Adam. The one sin of Adam resulted in all men being condemned as sinners. God now regards every person born since Adam as a sinner, regarded as a sinner. This is already said in verse 12, but note now in verse 19, it states it clearly, not only that you, are you regarded as a sinner, you are actually made a sinner. It's not just as being like, well, this is just the bad family heritage that kind of is a dark cloud. You are the sinner. You just don't. It's not just that you came from a bad line. You are the bad line. You've been made a sinner. Notice what he says in verse uh, nine, uh, 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The word made in the Greek means permanently placed down, appointed to a very specific set class to be designated in rank. There is a declaration here of God. All who are in Adam, if you are not in Christ, if you have not believed you are in Adam and you are by God declared, by God designated, by God marked as a sinner. And notice that verse 19 does not say that all uh, were made sinful, 
but they were made sinners. All of humanity has been legally declared to be sinners. This is humanity's judicial standing before God, and God also goes on to say, the soul that sins will die. It was all the result of Adam's one act of disobedience. God decreed that all humanity would be represented by that first man who would suffer the consequences then of that man's actions. Therefore, we all sinned in Adam and with Adam because he was our head, our representative. And what's the, everybody's going to say, that's not fair. You better say, you know what? It's a blessing that God did it this way because God would bring a new head, Christ, and if you are now found in that head, you don't want to say it's unfair that if all you do is believe in what he's done, now you've been made what? Righteous. So we have the bad news, but praise God, there is the other side in verse 18. Even so, through that one righteous act of Jesus Christ, those who come to believe, they are justified. They are declared righteous made righteous by faith in christ that leads to life so again verse 19 for for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners bad news you're going to die even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous which one do you want to be a condemned sinner or a celebrative saint well now some of you are going back to the question i asked way back in the beginning of this message how is any of this related to jude Beloved, the blessed truth that we find here is that all, all who are believers and all that we have as believers, nothing of it comes from ourselves, but solely from the obedience of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer's salvation from beginning to end, from top to bottom, from side to side, is solely from him and in him. And just as being sinners is found solely on being in Adam, we all know that we can only be sinners because Adam sinned. All our righteousness as believer comes solely through Jesus Christ. So the security of the believer does not come from what we feel, and it does not come from what we do. It comes from what God has said. And what God has done. In Adam, although we had yet to do anything, we were declared and made sinners. In Christ, although we have yet to do anything to merit it, we are declared and made righteous. Beloved, there is a Puritan saying, faith alone saves, but not the faith that is alone. Well, what is meant by that? Faith alone saves, but not the faith that is alone. We must rid ourselves of the idea that what we do saves us or keeps us. Because then we rob God of his doxology. We got, rob God of his glory. We rob God of his praise. We believers are justified, declared righteous solely because of Christ. Jesus alone lived a perfect life. Jesus alone was sinless in his life, in total, total obedience to the law of God. Jesus alone died in our place as our substitute on our behalf. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself, not and he and some of you, and he himself, by himself, for himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The end of Romans 5.19, again, we read even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Those who belong to Christ, you've been made righteous, not you've made yourself righteous, because you cannot. 
being born again, being made new, now God has permanently placed down. He has appointed you to a set class. He's designated you to a specific rank. You are declared righteous because you've been given the righteousness of Christ and his obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you're familiar with it, that he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God the Father in him, God the Son. Here we find that Jesus was regarded and treated as a sinner so that we might be regarded and treated as the righteous in his sight. Believers are righteous and will always be righteous because their righteousness is not derived from them, but derived from Christ. And Christ, beloved, never changes. This means that our status can never change. Are you certain of your salvation? Eternal security begins as you understand salvation depends only, entirely, and exclusively upon what Christ has done on that cross. Our assurance of salvation which is not the same as eternal security. Your assurance of salvation is realized as you see God working that out in you. Faith alone saves eternal security, but not the faith that is alone. You have assurance that you are saved because you see God working out in your life of obedience, his work. As I close, I would offer you a rather long quote by Charles Spurgeon that I trust will help solidify what we've considered from this point of God's protecting his beloved from stumbling. Listen to what Spurgeon said. It's a long one, so let me just read it carefully and slowly for you. There is no stability in any Christian. There is no stability in any Christian in himself considered. It is the grace of God within him that enables him to stand. I believe that the soul of man is immortal, yet not in and of itself, but only by the immortality which God bestows upon it from his own essential immortality. In other words, the only reason why you're immortal is because God makes you immortal. So it is with the new life that is within us. It shall never perish. But it is only eternal because God continues to keep it alive. Your final perseverance is not the result of anything in yourself, but the result of the grace which God continues to give you. And of, the, and of his eternal purpose which first chose you, and of his almighty power which still keeps you alive. He goes on. Ah, my brethren, the brightest saints on earth would fall into the lowest hell if God did not keep them from falling. Keep that in mind. Therefore, what? Praise him, O ye stars that shine in the church's sky, for ye would go out with a noxious smell as lamps do for want of oil. Did not the Lord keep your heavenly flame burning? Glory be unto the preserver of his church who keeps his loved ones even to the end. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory 
blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's the doxology of Jude. And it begins with the protective power of God to keep his beloved ones to himself. Our salvation is dependent upon it. Our joy is dependent upon it. Our expressions of faith that has been granted to us is dependent not on our power, but to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the powerful truth of what it is you do for your beloved in Christ. And Father, while we do not seek to diminish our responsibility to live lives which rightly reflect your precepts and principles, we begin with this awesome truth that we are not saved by what we do. But we confess and we praise the great God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ and the spirit who indwells with the, with the wonder that you have brought salvation to us from beginning to end. That you have made those who believe righteous. You have made them fit for heaven. You have put a new heart within them, a heart that longs to walk in obedience and so, Father, we want to give all praise to Jesus Christ. We want to give all glory to him who has done the work from beginning to end, the one who has declared it is finished, the one who has promised that he will not turn away any who come to him, but he has done all the work on their behalf. Father, I pray that if there be anyone who has come up short in their understanding of the greatness and the fullness of salvation, that today you would open their eyes, give them that gift of faith by which they might see the grace of God in salvation, cause them to cry out to you in their hearts to save them and to have mercy on their souls and lead them into the way everlasting. And Father, for those of us who know that salvation is of Christ and Christ alone, May we not begin to interject ourselves into that, that we would not rob you of the glory and praise that belongs to you. It's not what our hands have done, but it's what you have accomplished for us. Father, may we delight in it, may we rejoice in it, and may we celebrate it as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments. May it be to your praise and glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen.